Hi everyone, welcome and thank you for joining me here in session 6 of Dear Mr. Potter, the Storywonk Harry Potter Seminar. It is going to be, I assure you right up front, a fun night. I see everyone appearing here. We've got Glenda, and we've got Tamara, and we've got Jennifer, and we've got Sarah for the first time. Hello, Sarah. Thank you for joining us. We have Other Sarah, who has been here for quite some time. Welcome to you too, Other Sarah, or First Sarah, or Sarah Prime. I don't know. We'll have to come up with some kind of naming convention. There are a lot of Sarahs in the world. <laughs> to Lance, and to Michelle, and to Allison, who is joining us from Australia, to Sue, who has popped up on Twitter. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. It is really going to be a fun one tonight. We've got a lot of material to get through. A lot of material to get through. I have compressed three chapters into one seminar, and here's the kicker. I think we're going to make it through on time. I have no real worries about tonight, because this is the part of the book where things take a turn for the episodic. This is where, as the title of tonight's session would indicate, we begin to put the pieces together, and we are building toward our climax, toward our final movement, but we're really not there yet. So we have some adventures that may seem disassociated. Some adventures, one might argue, were one of a mind to, that you could just cut from the book entirely, with very little consequence. We'll get to all of that tonight. That is not to say, by the way, that this stuff isn't fun. There's a ton of fun stuff, and there's a lot to discuss about part of it. But we'll move pretty quickly through some of it, I assure you. Before we begin, though, I wanted to tell you uh, <laughs> a little experience that I had this week. I was struck this week anew by the quality, by the thoughtfulness, by the kindness, by the consideration of the comments that I get every week about the Harry Potter seminar. It has been a blast. This is my favorite part of the whole thing. Once we've started, once the ball is rolling, once we're moving through the book, I get, I don't know, a half dozen, a dozen emails a day offering insights and thoughts and perspectives that genuinely hadn't occurred to me. And from time to time, one strikes me like a bolt out of the blue. I would like to thank Haiti. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Haiti, for getting in touch this week and for pointing out a brilliant, startling example of eucatastrophe right there in the book that I had completely overlooked. Eucatastrophe, as I said last week, was the word used by J.R.R. Tolkien to describe a fortunate, sudden disaster. <laughs> a good kind of, of awfulness. A good kind of sudden collapse into... I don't know, randomness, I suppose. Uh, eucatastrophe is the word that we use to describe things suddenly, fortuitously working out. Things happening for the best. And I was talking about, of course, Harry catching the snitch in his mouth as he tumbles out of the sky, and how that's quite a eucatastrophic moment for our young hero. But of course, concealed within that same scene, there is a much more striking example of eucatastrophe, a much more powerful and plot-significant example of eucatastrophe. As Hady pointed out in her email, when Hermione nudges Professor Quirrell and knocks him over, thereby breaking the jinx upon Harry's broom and actually saving the day, that is eucatastrophic. That is not Hermione's intent. That is nothing that she is focused upon. It's nothing that she's dedicated to. It is just a random thing that happens. But it saves the day. I was staggered by that, of course. Because in the moment we're so focused on Snape, in the moment we're so focused on this, this seemingly kind of uh, direct and singular confrontation between Hermione and Snape, that while I understood intellectually <laughs> what had happened to Professor Quirrell... It hadn't struck me in quite that way, but it's powerful. And we're going to talk a little more about the forces of chance, if chance you call it, uh, in the pages of Harry Potter tonight. One of the things that we're going to look at, possibly next week, possibly in our final week looking at the book, 
is the role of luck in Harry Potter and and this whole concept of eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe works in the Tolkienian universe because the Tolkienian universe is a fundamentally just and in a sense optimistic place. I guess you could argue that when things happen, things can happen just for the good. Good things can just occur randomly. I'm not sure that's true about Harry Potter. And that's not to say that there isn't goodness in the Harry Potter universe. Of course there is. And that's not to say that good things don't happen. Of course they do. But I'm not sure that that kind of unlooked for fortune is a fundamental principle of Harry Potter. We're going to talk about that in due course. And we're going to talk about it partly, of course, with reference to these significant eucatastrophes, but also to the underlying threads that keep pulling Harry back to the plot. We'll talk about all of that. Guys, thank you so much. Oh, Sarah says that it is her niece's birthday today, and not only is her niece named Lily, a very good name in the Potterverse, but she is blessed to be a Hufflepuff. Happy birthday, Lily, Sarah's niece. I wish you many more. I wish you many happy returns. And good fortune on being a Hufflepuff. <laughs> all right, all right. This is great stuff. Just a few YouTube problems here to, to deal with right up front, but we're good. We are good. Okay, let's get right into it. Oh, and I do apologize, by the way, if the audio quality on the live YouTube feed is not all that it could be tonight. Believe it or not, up here in upstate New York, I'm actually having to run the air conditioner tonight. The podcast should sound great, so hopefully everything will be fine. But yes, there might be a little buzz that you can hear. Oh, and everyone in the YouTube chat is saying happy birthday to Lily. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Oh, and Lance says, I would say the frogs are more an example of that. Yes, the frogs too. We'll talk a little about that tonight too. Uh, Neville's great good fortune and how uh, how that is not strictly eucatastrophic. How I think that may be an indication that there is in fact something else at play. We'll talk a little about that later. All right. So I said that the... Adventures tonight are going to be a little more episodic, and I, I foresaw that we would be able to race through them in the allotted time. So with that in mind, let's get started. Uh, we pick up with chapter 12, and we skip ahead to mid-December, a little over a month since Harry's first Quidditch match. I'm going to talk a little more about the timeline later, because the timeline really accelerates in this part of the book. We really start moving. We cover almost half a year in the span of tonight's chapters. Um, and that's partly a function of J.K. Rowling's desire, her commitment to this structure, that she wanted to map the events of each book to an academic year. And we'll talk a little at the end, I think, about how successful she is in that regard and whether or not that was the right choice to make. But it is certainly going to become the most conspicuous feature of the structure that we're going to see tonight, to the point that it almost becomes, in the last chapter that we're going to review tonight, it almost becomes inexplicable. It almost stretches beyond the bounds of belief that this amount of time is passing with these few significant events. See how that works out. Um, so we open in the middle of December on a snow-shrouded Hogwarts, and the news that Harry and all the assorted Weasley brothers will be staying in Hogwarts for Christmas. Malfoy loses a little of his menace now that Harry is the hero of the Quidditch match. Uh, his snide remarks about Harry staying at the school for the holidays actually reflect deep desire on Harry's part. He wants to stay. He doesn't want to go back to the Dursleys. And I don't think that we can blame him for that. An interesting thing has occurred here, which is that at this point, very sharply and suddenly... 
we basically rob Malfoy of his menace. We basically lose this malevolent antagonist who's been has been grinding on Harry's nerves through the first two-thirds of the book. He still has a personal antagonism with Ron, of course, but Malfoy overnight, with Harry's great Quidditch triumph, Malfoy overnight stops being a a believable, a credible opponent for Harry. It kind of feels a little... I don't know. Harry has stepped up into a different tier, and Malfoy resolutely hasn't. That won't continue, of course, through the other books. But within the span of this novel, yeah, there's there's very little here uh, from Malfoy. And it's an odd shift for a character who seems to embody, as I said, through the first arc at Hogwarts in particular, I guess through the middle third of the book, if you like, he seems to embody a fundamental conflict that lies at the heart of Hogwarts. You know, he embodies House Slytherin as Harry embodies House Gryffindor. But we move here from Malfoy being representative of that threat and the virtues and vices associated with that infamous house to seeing Snape, I think, as a more direct embodiment of that. That, I think, is connected with a shift in the the tone of conflict through the next part of the book. I'm going to talk about that a little more specifically in, in just a little while. <laughs> Chris in the YouTube chat says Harry leveled up. He sure did. He kind of leveled up and he left, he left Malfoy behind. But it is more than that, as I said. Ah. Uh, Trying to trick me again, Chris. You always try and get me to jump my notes. I know you. <laughs> so uh, Malfoy's barbs work a little better against Ron, and the two get into a scuffle as they leave potions class. They are immediately caught by Snape. And despite Hagrid's words in Ron's defense, Snape takes five points from Gryffindor and sends them on their way. Ron says that he's going to get Malfoy, and Harry agrees that he hates both Malfoy and Snape. Just genially, just no problem. I hate those guys. After seeing the Christmas decorations in the Great Hall, Harry and the others slip off to the library, though only after telling Hagrid in no uncertain terms. And I do like the bluntness, the the directness, the respect almost that they show Hagrid. And I do say almost because there's actually very little real respect, but it, but it looks like respect. Um, I like how direct they are when they say, no, we're still trying to find out what you're hiding from us. You slipped up. You screwed up when you gave us the name Nicholas Flamel, and we're still working on that. And yes, it's been a month. But we're still working on it. It's kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you'd forget, uh, you'd forgive, excuse me, Hagrid for feeling relaxed about this whole endeavor, though, because yes, a month has passed, and we're no closer to discovering the real identity of Nicholas Flamel. But we are going to move to the library where the students go off to research, and we get our first slide of the evening, and here it is. And I am going to try to remember, without any prompting at all, to take these slides down when I'm done with them. Let's see how that works tonight. Mm. They had indeed been searching books for Flamel's name ever since Hagrid had let it slip, because how else were they going to find out what Snape was trying to steal? The trouble was, it was very hard to know where to begin, not knowing what Flamel might have done to get himself into a book. He wasn't in Great Wizards of the Twentieth Century, or Notable Magical Names of Our Time. He was missing, too, from Important Modern Magical Discoveries and A Study of Recent Developments in Wizardry. And then, of course, there was the sheer size of the library. Tens of thousands of books, thousands of shelves, hundreds of narrow rows. Hermione took out a list of subjects and titles she had decided to search while Ron strode off down a row of books and started pulling them off the shelves at random. Harry wandered over to the restricted section. 
He had been wondering for a while if Flamel wasn't somewhere in there. Unfortunately, you needed a specially signed note from one of the teachers to look in any of the restricted books, and he knew he'd never get one. These were the books containing powerful dark magic never taught at Hogwarts, and only read by older students studying advanced defense against the dark arts. "'What are you looking for, boy?' "'Nothing,' said Harry. Madame Pince the librarian brandished a feather duster at him. "'You'd better get out, then. Go on, out!' Wishing he'd been a bit quicker at thinking up some story, Harry left the library. He, Ron, and Hermione had already agreed they'd better not ask Madame Pince where they could find Flamel. They were sure she'd be able to tell them, but they couldn't risk Snape overhearing what they were up to. So there's a couple of great little details that we should, of course, pull out. The first is Harry uh, <laughs> going off to look at the restricted books. Harry being drawn... I mean, the text gives us the excuse, the justification, the rationalization that he suspects Flamel may be in one of these volumes of dark magic, but isn't there something else possibly drawing Harry toward these tomes of power? Isn't there something in Harry that, when left to his own devices, is attracted to darkness? A possible point of speculation, since, of course, we can't look forward into the books. Um... Also a great little character beat between Hermione and Ron, with Hermione writing out the neat list of the subjects she believes that they should study, and Ron just pulling books off the shelf. We really are seeing the power trio at work here. Um, so we talked a little about Nicholas Flamel last week, and we're going to, uh, about the idea of this alchemist, about, and also, you know, his, his role in the plot as a clue. But we're... We're jumping to some conclusions here. <laughs> they had indeed been searching books for Flamel's name ever since Hagrid had let it slip, because how else were they going to find out what Snape was trying to steal? This is a classic example of begging the question, you know? And there's a lot of this, and I don't think that it's a problem. We spend a lot of time with Harry and the others simply assuming things about the plot, things which turn out to be true. But that's okay, because in a weird sense... Harry and the others know what kind of story they're in. The big reveal, of course, is the big reveal. That is the twist that leaves both readers and Harry stunned. But the general shape of the thing does seem to be known. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting a lot of comments. <laughs> yes, too bad they don't have the internet in the wizarding world, says Janet. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, and Carrie says that points at Hogwarts need to be administered either by Chris Hardwick or Tony Reale. Yes, Chris Hardwick doing At Midnight in Hogwarts, I think, would actually be a dream of Chris Hardwick's. I'm sure of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kay says this may or may not be a needless thing. Um, no. I'm going to leave it up for just a moment later. But thank you. Thank you for staying on top of that. I like that. Um... <laughs> Because what I want to do is look at the way that this passage is structured. I want to look at what has happened to the story. I talked about a shift in the tone of conflict through these chapters. And this is really where it begins. We talked last week about Harry's heroic exceptionalism. And the difference between the hero who is seen as exceptional by others and the hero who believes it himself. It may seem at this moment, for a time, that Harry believes that the rules don't apply to him. If he could circumvent them by coming up with a story, then he would do so, and he would be right to do so. That's kind of, from an adult perspective, a problematic thought. Harry seems to believe that the rules don't apply, 
But that isn't the kind of conflict that we're dealing with here. This is the point at which the fantasy story crashes into the boarding school adventure, in which the rules are there to be harmlessly circumvented because adults are meddlesome and children know better. <laughs> it has the, the tenor of a game, a, a movement of pieces that mustn't cross. And it's no coincidence, I think, that at this point, we introduce the idea of wizard chess and we introduce the, the concept of the game as a, as a means of competition, but also as a means of challenging oneself. In this game, adults aren't exactly the antagonists. In as much as... <sighs> Inasmuch as the adults are not driven by goals and motivations, they are driven by a strict adherence to the rules. This is the kind of story that we're in. The rules are fixed in place and the adults obey them. You can tell, I think, that this is where Harry's thoughts are leading him by the reference to Snape. Why, at the end of this passage, would he think that Snape is more likely to discover what they're doing if he managed to convince Madame Pence to give him access to the restricted books than by, say, Hermione having a conspicuous list and Ron pulling every conceivable book off the shelf? They are already behaving suspiciously, but they are not breaking the rules. Therefore, they have no reason to believe that they are vulnerable. It also explains why Harry doesn't go to Professor McGonagall or, honestly, even seriously question Hagrid. This is a matter of children versus adults. And that is going to be an ongoing point of conflict through these chapters and through the beginning of next week's reading too, though we will abruptly shift tones next week. It's... It's an interesting decision. And of course, it's impossible to tell how purposeful it was. It's, impos it's impossible to tell how, how consciously Rowling reframes the narrative here. But it happens so starkly and so suddenly that it does seem to be a deliberate choice. Though it may well be argued, too, that it's actually not a choice as much as it's a consequence of adhering to that year-long structure and needing some episodic adventures to, to postpone the main arc of the action. It also, of course... Um, it also gets us around the very important question of Harry's interest in the Forbidden Hallway um, and in the secret that's hidden there. In the heroic fantasy version of this story, Harry has no business interfering with the secret that's buried under the Forbidden Corridor. In the boarding school adventure, of, uh, in the boarding school adventure, excuse me, version of the story, it is a legitimate goal. It's, it's a mandatory goal precisely because it is a secret and b forbidden. The game is set. The rules are in place, and our actors, our protagonists, have to play the game. They have to work within the rules to achieve their goal. Or at least, they have to achieve their goal without breaking rules, which I guess is a subtle distinction. If you've ever read any of um, The Famous Five or The Secret Seven in the British tradition, Nancy Drew or The Hardy Boys in the American tradition, if you've ever read any of these... Um, kids versus adults books, you'll see some of these same mechanics, I think, at work. And it rests upon this fundamental idea that the rules are not malevolent, that they are clearly defined, uh, defined excuse me, and that they can be circumvented without consequence. Which, I suppose when you think about it, seems like a healthy and irrational part of growing up. Testing your boundaries, working out how to circumvent the rules that don't matter, while still obeying the rules that do, that seems to be 
<laughs> Let me rephrase that. That would seem to a child to be a healthy part of growing up. If only you were smart enough. If only you were careful enough, thoughtful enough, lucky enough, and your teachers couldn't take action against you because you didn't technically break the rules. That seems to be a fundamental part of a lot of of YA fiction, young skewing YA fiction, children's fiction in particular. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, and Sarah's pulling out exactly, of course, the revolution that sparked from this whole idea, I think, and the way that, that this core concept was reimagined for the current generation of YA readers, your Maze Runners, your Divergence, your uh, Hunger Games. Yes. And Kay Clark is saying Scoot-Doo, which I think maybe Scooby-Doo. Uh, Scooby-Doo would certainly apply. Yes. Exploration. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, this this is exactly that, I think. This is, um, you know, whether it's Elliot in E.T. or it's, it's you know, any one of these, these you know, plucky childhood heroes undertaking adventures and, and staying out late at night. This is the Goonies philosophy, you know. Uh, this is the rule. This is, this is what gets us to stories where I guess there's nothing in the rule book that says a, a dog can't play basketball. You honor the letter of the laws and you believe that society and consequ- consequence, excuse me, will be constrained by the letter of the law. So this, then, is the other kind of transgression that we see in Harry Potter. And we saw it earlier, too. We did see it during the duel with Malfoy. Though that ended catastrophically, Harry's intent was to circumvent the rules in order to conduct his business. This is the kind of story that Fred and George Weasley occupy with their their anarchic pranks. This is the story that Neville occupies you know he neville at this point is not a part of a heroic fantasy tradition in the way that harry is even in the way that ron and hermione are albeit in much more much more sidelined ways most of hogwarts is engaged in a boarding school adventure which makes sense because it's a boarding school um and there's really nothing wrong with that one of the interesting things about harry potter i think both as a singular book but much more as a series is the way that rolling arcs us out of stories for children not just <laughs> in the sense of the target audience but also in the sense of the understanding of the world into darker and more complex and more sophisticated uh landscapes and it, it's a really bold and striking piece of work so back to <laughs> oh, and Sarah brings up an interesting point too on Twitter. Rules are for Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs. Yeah. Yeah, that thought hadn't occurred to me, but you're right because, I mean, we've seen that Slytherin is, is ruled by ambition and, and the desire for power at any cost. Um, and Gryffindor is governed by bravery bravery to to an unwise extent um yeah no there is something in there isn't there that exceptional hmm yeah i don't know i need i need to think about that <laughs> that's a very interesting thought yeah 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 okay right because it's not just harry it's not just um it's not just Harry that can circumvent the rules. It is understood that the, the rules must be circumvented. And here we even have Hermione and Ron circumventing the rules too. Yeah. 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 Oh, and I'm seeing some discussion of house points too. And yes, house points are absolutely the formalized version of this. That is one of the reasons that house points exist, is so that 
we have a, a a means of keeping track you know um we're going to go through in our last session we're going to go through and actually look at all of the house points that have been awarded and deducted through the course of the entire book and see what we can learn from that. Let me tell you, I've been preparing a list. It is an interesting list. It is a really interesting list. All right. All of that aside, let's get back to Nicholas Flamel. As I mentioned last week, Nicholas Flamel was a real historical figure born in 1330 and, of course, historically a purported alchemist. He is not an unknown figure in the real world. But the fact that our intrepid heroes can find nothing about him, the fact that there's no general encyclopedia that can guide them to even a, a, a tiny bit of information, they can't even track down the name, is surprising. So we're forced to ask, is it possible that there's no trace of him in the Hogwarts library among these thousands of books, or is it more likely that someone has wrought some kind of enchantment upon these books either deleting or concealing the information. What do you think? I, I, I'm very um, <laughs> I'm very focused this week for some reason. It's probably the tonal shift that's done it, but I'm very focused on the notion of Hogwarts as a proactive character in the story. Hogwarts itself, the castle itself, the, this space that they occupy. Not in the sense, perhaps, of an overriding consciousness, though we'll get to something like that later, but in the sense that It is established that Hogwarts is a magical place, not just in that it contains wizards and spells and the makings of potions and such like. It is a magical place that that possesses ambiguity in a way that a space ought not to. And yet, most of the time, we forget that completely. Most of the time, through the arc of this book, we don't even think about the ghosts. We don't even think about the the weird, you know, portrait entrance to uh, to the Gryffindor dorm. We don't think about the fact that this is a magical place. And yet, I think that when you scratch the surface of the narrative, you can track these things. Yeah. Yes, Sarah gives us the the, the spoiler that we will uncover uh, in tonight's reading. Flamel is so old; he's not in the modern texts. That's absolutely true. But if you went into a library now and you opened a, a biographical encyclopedia and you looked up Nicholas Flamel, he would be in there. <laughs> I mean, I get that they're looking at at modern texts, but it seems unlikely that Hermione, after a month of study, and we get some justification in the text that it's ten minutes here, that it's ten minutes there, but all the same. Let us put a pin in that because we're going to talk more about Hogwarts as an agent in this story in just a little while. We move on from there to learn that Hermione is returning home for Christmas and we learn that both of her parents are dentists. With wonderfully flat affect, it is asserted that dentists are just the most mundane and, and mugglish people that you can imagine. In short order, Harry is introduced to Wizard Chess. That comes out of a clear blue sky, but we'll continue to reference that as we move through tonight's chapters. And of course, as we move through our conclusion. And Harry wakes on Christmas morning to find presents waiting for him. Here we go. Harry picked up the top parcel. It was wrapped in thick brown paper and scrawled across it was To Harry, from Agrid. Inside was a roughly cut wooden flute. Hagrid had, excuse me, Hagrid had obviously whittled it himself. Harry blew it. It sounded a bit like an owl. A second, very small parcel contained a note. We received your message and enclosed your Christmas present from Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. Taped to the note was a fifty pence piece. It's friendly, said Harry. Ron was fascinated by the fifty pence. 
Weird, he said. What a shape. This is money. You can keep it, said Harry, laughing at how pleased Ron was. Hagrid and my aunt and uncle. So who sent these? I think I know who that one's from, said Ron, turning a bit pink and pointing at a very lumpy parcel. My mum. I told her you didn't expect any presents and... Oh, no, he groaned. She's made you a Weasley sweater. Harry had torn open the parcel to find a thick, hand-knitted sweater in emerald green and a large box of homemade fudge. Every year she makes us a sweater, said Ron, unwrapping his own, and mine's always maroon. That's really nice of her, said Harry, trying the fudge, which was very tasty. His next present also contained candy, a large box of chocolate frogs from Hermione. This only left one parcel. Harry picked it up and felt it. It was very light. He unwrapped it. Something fluid and silvery gray went slithering to the floor where it lay in gleaming folds. Ron gasped. I've heard of those, he said in a hushed voice, dropping the box of every flavor beans he'd gotten from Hermione. If that's what I think it is, they're really rare and really valuable. What is it? Harry picked the shining silvery cloth off the floor. It was strange to the touch, like water woven into material. It's an invisibility cloak, said Ron, a look of awe on his face. I'm sure it is. Try it on. It turns out, no spoilers, that it is, in fact, an invisibility cloak. This reminded me, for some reason today, reading this again, this scene struck me as being surprisingly reminiscent of of Father Christmas appearing to the Pevensey children in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I mean, that is a fairly common beat in fantasy stories, wherein the the hero is given a magical artifact that, that assists them on their journey or their quest, a, a gift that comes out of a clear blue sky that, that somehow is representative of and reflective of their virtue of the bonds that they have made. It's a lovely beat. It's a genuinely lovely beat. I don't know about you guys. I get genuinely touched every time I read that scene and Harry opens the jumper <laughs> from Mrs. Weasley. Mrs. Weasley, basically the best. I think we all agree here, right? <laughs> and of course, we will learn more about the Invisibility Cloak on the next page. Let's take a quick look at the uh, at the gifts, though, I think. Uh, we get the gift from Hagrid, the flute, this... this rough, this simple, this unvarnished, unpolished thing that contains within it the possibility of creativity. Uh, a very simple but eloquent kind of magic and a very simple but eloquent kind of gift. I'm, I'm very touched by that too. And I should say at this point that J.K. Rowling has a few exceptional gifts as a writer. Um, she, she's inordinately proficient in a number of ways but there are a few spaces in which she absolutely excels one of the spaces in which she excels as we've discussed before is the naming of things she has a marvelously acute sense of of the the sound and the feel and the shape and the texture of words so she can name things in such a way as to evoke their essential nature in a very simple and direct and and compelling way Another gift that she has is a gift for inordinate specificity when it comes to objects, when it comes to things, when it comes to particularly representative and emblematic things. We had a lot of that back in uh, Diagon Alley, when we were looking at Harry's shopping list, when we were looking at him gathering up his, his cauldron and his various supplies, and of course, always and forever, the wands. 
There's an enormous specificity there. She really knows what she's doing. She really knows what she's evoking with these very particular and specific references. And we absolutely get that here. No one but Hagrid could have given Harry that flute. And when you think about it, Hagrid could have given Harry nothing but that flute. It's, it's a beautifully precise and comprehensive piece of character work that isn't just representative, but actually informs us. It actually gives us new information about Hagrid, but it's new information which seems so harmonious with what we already know of him that, that it feels as though it's something we should have already known. I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. Oh yes, uh, Lance is chatting in the, uh, Lance is chatting in the YouTube chat here about the 50 pence piece. The reason that Ron, and it's so weird that in the American version, this isn't in any way illuminated. A 50 pence piece is a heptagon. It is a seven-sided coin. It is absolutely unique in my experience of money. I have never seen a coin of that shape. I do not know why it is that shape, other than it always has been. There you go. I believe they were introduced in the early 1970s, I want to say. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, Usagi asks, has Lonnie made Weasley jumpers for the family? Lonnie has not. A, a, a sweater takes too long for Lonnie. She likes a faster turnaround of project. That is why socks are perfect for her. Even when she's knitting a scarf, she gets a little squirrely. She needs to be able to put a project to bed in like three days and then move on to a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> and Alan pulls out, of course, if Harry needs more incentive to circumvent rules, let's give him a cloak to help. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, and it's so interesting, too. I mean, we'll address this very shortly, but it's, it's so interesting to remember at this point in the text, Harry and Dumbledore have spent no time together. No time. No, no private one-on-one -on -one time. It's crazy. Yarl Amp says, oh my god, seven-sided? Yes, it is crazy. <laughs> I kind of love it. I kind of, and, and again, here we see, this is an echo of, of Ron back in the train to Hogwarts, you know? His fascination with the mundane world, his fascination with this, this strange and, and marvelous place that possesses no magic but is just weird. I kind of love that. It's a great character beat. Um... Hermione gives Harry chocolate frogs, um, a formal, courteous, expected, traditional, but nonetheless thoughtful gift. The detail I like, the detail that illuminates it for me is that Harry gets chocolate frogs and Ron gets the every flavor beans. They each get their favorites, which I like. Hermione is good people. <laughs> a little staid, a little predictable, perhaps, but good, good people. And please note, Absolutely no references made to Harry and or Ron giving Hermione a gift in return. She's not even there, but she took care of business. She's good people. Um, the 50p piece, yes, a seven-sided coin. Uh, literally, literally the least thoughtful gift possible. Um, in as much as it requires absolutely the least amount of thought uh, to give to someone. Um, I like the sense that they are simply meeting their obligation. But I also like the inference that there is still an obligation to be met. I like... I like the idea that the Dursleys haven't washed their hands of Harry. <laughs> you know, he's here at Hogwarts having these adventures, but there is still a connection there. There is still a bond there. It is one of the most striking and fascinating things about this book, about the series as a whole, that Rowling doesn't cut the ties between Harry and the Dursleys until much, much later. Harry is going to return there at the end of the year. Um... 
And that's that's kind of huge. That speaks to the, the, the permeability of these thresholds that Harry trans, uh, transgresses through. We'll talk a little about that too. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, Sarah says, yes. The 50p piece is like leaving a nickel for the waiter. It's more insulting than leaving nothing. Yes, exactly right. Isn't it? I love it. And taped to the card. Awesome. Um, the sweater, of course, is, yes, handmade. It is thoughtful. But more than more than the specifics of the sweater, it is the fact that this is the gift she gives everyone. It is the fact that this is inclusive and, and a warm gesture in a way that goes beyond the actual physical object itself. Um, Mrs. Weasley, who has no reason to do so, is including Harry in the family. And that's, that's a very powerful and thoughtful uh, point here. And of course, the invisibility cloak, the boon, the relic, the, uh, the possession of Harry's father that allows him directly or indirectly, purposefully or impurposefully, to see his mother and father in due course. We'll get there yet. Yeah. So Harry enjoys a happy Christmas Day in the company of this extended family of, of the Weasley boys and the Hogwarts community as a whole. Oh, and, uh, okay, I guess a very brief spoiler if you don't know where uh, where Harry Potter is going uh, as a series, if you're unaware somehow of, of one of the key romantic entanglements of the whole show, maybe skip ahead like a minute. Um... There is a beautiful beat in the Great Hall where uh, Hagrid is getting drunk on wine and he gets so ruddy-faced that he leans over and he kisses Minerva McGonagall just on the cheek. And instead of, of you know, reacting as we might expect her to react, she blushes and is coy and is flirty and is playful with him. I absolutely love that moment. I mean, because it's Hagrid and McGonagall, why wouldn't you love that moment? But more importantly, when you think about the the way that the power dynamic is echoed between... Hagrid and Dumbledore and McGonagall and Ron and Harry and Hermione, you really see some foreshadowing of a relationship dynamic that is going to become more important later. I'll say no more than that right now. <laughs> no more than that. Um, I do love that beat. That evening, though, Harry tries on his father's invisibility cloak and he slips out of the Gryffindor dormitory. He makes his way to the restricted section of the library to discover more about Nicholas Flamel. And he does so, I guess, rather than heading directly to the Forbidden Hallway. We've kind of, we've kind of fixated. You remember the passage at the beginning of, uh, of, tonight, of tonight's session, the first slide that I put up, had this assertion that they had to find out more about Nicholas Flamel, otherwise how would they find out what Snape was trying to steal? Begging the question entirely, is Snape trying to steal something? So here, given the power to go anywhere, the power to do anything within the bounds of Hogwarts, Harry fixates on the task at hand. He's like a, a character in a video game who has an active quest, you know? He's not interested in going off and doing other things. He has to, to check this off the list first. So he goes to the library to investigate, and I will get to that slide in a moment. I'm just going to take a very quick look and catch up with you guys. There's a lot of chat tonight. Liz says, including Harry in the family is exactly what I thought. Beautiful and sentimental moment presented so simply. Well done, Joe. I couldn't agree more. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. Gifting in Harry Potter is always beautifully done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Your laps. I believe she's, she's, uh, she's quoting Vernon Dursley here. Oh, we should probably do something. What have you got in your pockets, Petunia? 50 pence piece? That'll do. I think if there was even that amount of thought to it, I would be surprised. Yeah, yeah. 
Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we're being a little careful here about spoilers. I mean, yeah. Yeah, so much of Harry Potter is just... I mean, far more than Outlander, which was, of course, our point of reference during the last seminar. So much of Harry Potter is just in the public consciousness, you know? It's it's very difficult to to draw that dividing line between what is a meaningful spoiler and what is something that is so ubiquitously understood that it would be conspicuous to not address it, you know, that it would be foolish to, to not address it. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chris says, random swadomp thought. If cold weather can interfere with owl posts, do wizards ever come up with alternate mail? That is an excellent question. To the best of my knowledge, they do not. Um, but you would think that uh, that there would be a more efficient means. Although, well, I guess there are very strict... <laughs> uh, I don't suppose this really is a spoiler, is it? Um, hmm... Suffice it to say that there are certain wards in place at Hogwarts that make the owl mail the only feasible means of delivering mail right now. Can we say that? Yeah. Good, good, good. Oh, and Sarah says, Molly Weasley's like the platonic ideal of a mom. I couldn't agree more. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Jennifer says in the YouTube chat, I would certainly be torn between eating all the chocolate frogs and testing out the invisibility cloak. <laughs> You'd want to think he had one chocolate frog before slipping out of bed, right? Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's move on to this slide right here and get into the restricted section of the library. The restricted section was right at the back of the library. Stepping carefully over the rope that separated these books from the rest of the library, he held up his lamp to read the titles. They didn't tell him much. Their peeling faded in languages Harry couldn't understand. Some had no title at all. One book had a dark stain on it that looked horribly like blood. The hairs on the back of Harry's neck prickled. Maybe he was imagining it, maybe not. But he thought a faint whispering was coming from the books, as though they knew someone was there who shouldn't be. He had to start somewhere. Setting the lamp down carefully on the floor, he looked along the bottom shelf for an interesting-looking book. A large black and silver volume caught his eye. He pulled it out with difficulty because it was very heavy, and balancing it on his knee, let it fall open. A piercing, blood-curdling shriek split the silence. The book was screaming. Harry snapped it shut, but the shriek went on and on, one high, unbroken, ear-splitting note. He stumbled backward and knocked over his lamp, which went out at once. Panicking, he heard footsteps coming down the corridor outside. Stuffing the shrieking book back on the shelf, he ran for it. He passed Filch in the doorway. Filch's pale, wild eyes looked straight through him, and Harry slipped under Filch's outstretched arm and streaked off up the corridor, the book's shrieks still ringing in his ears. He came to a sudden halt in front of a tall suit of armor. He'd been so busy getting away from the library he hadn't paid attention to where he was going. Perhaps because it was dark, he didn't recognize where he was at all. There was a suit of armor near the kitchens, he knew, but he must be five floors above there. You asked me to come directly to you, Professor, if anyone was wandering around at night, and someone's been in the library restricted section. Harry felt the blood drain out of his face. Wherever he was, Filch must know a shortcut, because his soft, greasy voice was getting nearer, and to his horror, 
It was Snape who replied, The restricted section. Well, they can't be far. We'll catch them. We've talked before <laughs> about Harry losing his way in Hogwarts and ending up exactly where he needs to be. And here we have it again. This time it's a little more subtle. You have to, you know, <laughs> infer just a little. But he dashes from the library. He loses his way. And finds himself exactly where he needs to be. Doubly so, in fact, because he not only hears Snape and Filch, and also discovers in very, he also discovers, excuse me, in very short order, the mirror of Erised. It seems almost impossible that this is just chance. And the question, I suppose, the question that I foreshadowed earlier is this. What force is guiding Harry's steps through the halls of Hogwarts? What led him to the Forbidden Hallway not once, but twice? What led him here to the resting place of the Mirror of Erised, which presumably is not in this abandoned classroom for very long? It seems very clear that it is being moved from the place where it was, since you can't imagine they would store such a dangerous artifact in a classroom, to the place where it is going to be, which we will discover at the end of the book. What force is guiding Harry's steps? Is it some innate sense of where he needs to be? Is it a capital F Star Wars-style force? Is it prophecy? Is it fate? Is it some controlling sentience in Hogwarts guiding his steps through the movement of, of passages and of staircases? Is it another sentience that we should know about? Is it Dumbledore, for example? What do you think? <laughs> Alan says, how you catastrophic for Harry to end up here to listen to this conversation. Isn't it, though? Yeah. Yeah, this is the third time that we've had Harry ending up somewhere unexpected at random. Um, and it's not impossible that Hogwarts is just the kind of place where this happens. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah asks, is it narrativium? Yes. <laughs> Discworld fan here. <laughs> and ER Lab says, why did they store it in the classroom? Why not keep it in Dumble's office? That is an interesting question, right? That That is a, a worthwhile and valid question. I can only speculate kind of wheels within wheels, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Sarah says, the number of times Harry overhears an important conversation is a main pet peeve with this series. It's lazy writing. I would ordinarily agree with you. Um, relying on coincidence to drive a plot is generally a very bad idea. And that applies to, to near coincidence, you know, where Harry trails along behind someone who should know better as he's about to in the next chapter. But it does feel as though there's a deeper purpose here. It does feel as though there's something happening within the pages of this book that isn't just that isn't just lazy writing, that isn't just convenience, that isn't just a, a contrivance so that we can move forward. Besides anything else, Harry hearing Filch and Snape at this point doesn't actually move the plot forward one inch. The finding of the mirror is the important thing in this chapter. Yeah. Is it luck? Is it inevitability? 
Narrativium and L-Space, says Chris. I know, I know. The description of the library made me think of Pratchett, too. <laughs> and of course, if Pratchett is to be believed, then all libraries are connected, and somewhere on some plane out there in the wild and woolly fringes of L-Space, the, the uh, Unseen University Library is in fact connected to the Hogwarts Library, too. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and Sarah says, I still don't buy it. It never worked for me, which is a completely appropriate answer. Right? We are not called upon to to justify or to to reinforce our responses to fiction. You get what you get out of this book, out of every book that you read. That is the way that it works. If it doesn't speak to you, that is fundamentally a failing in the book. I'm never comfortable with the idea that that you need to buy in. You know, you give things a chance. You give things a fair shake. But if a detail doesn't work for you, if a contrivance, if a motif, if a recurring idea doesn't work for you, you're under no obligation, no matter how much you may love the rest of the story, to, to buy into it or to excuse the fact that it doesn't work for you. I think it's completely valid. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the mirror of Erised. Uh, we're going to get a classic three-beat with the mirror, and uh, we're going to move through it pretty quickly. The classic three-beat is the first instance establishes, the second instance reinforces or exaggerates, the third instance subverts. We're going to get a three-beat here with the mirror, and then we're going to get a separate disconnected beat much later in the story, wherein the mirror performs such a different function and behaves so differently that it may as well be an entirely separate artifact from a thematic point of view. Um, we will, of course, get that to due course, and we'll deal with that last one uh, in our final week, but we will begin with Harry's glimpse of his parents. Yeah. Here we go. She was a very pretty woman. She had dark red hair, and her eyes... Her eyes are just like mine, Harry thought, edging a little closer to the glass. Bright green, exactly the same shape. But then he noticed that she was crying. Smiling, but crying at the same time. The tall, thin, black-haired man standing next to her put his arm around her. He wore glasses, and his hair was very untidy. It stuck up at the back, just as Harry's did. Harry was so close to the mirror now that his nose was nearly touching that of his reflection. Mom, he whispered. Dad. They just looked at him, smiling. And slowly, Harry looked into the faces of the other people in the mirror and saw other pairs of green eyes like his, other noses like his, even a little old man who looked as though he had Harry's knobbly knees. Harry was looking at his family for the first time in his life. The Potters smiled and waved at Harry as he stared hungrily back at them, his hands pressed flat against the glass, as though he was hoping to fall right through it and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside him, half joy, half terrible sadness. How long he stood there he didn't know. The reflections did not fade, and he looked and looked until a distant noise brought him back to his senses. He couldn't stay here. He had to find his way back to bed. He tore his eyes away from his mother's face, whispered, I'll come back, and hurried from the room. So, we have, of course, the 
that's not even a repetition this goes beyond repetition this is the this is the manifestation this is the realization of the ongoing reference to harry's appearance that he looks like his father but he has his mother's eyes this is the moment we're told where harry looks upon his family for the first time in his life except can anyone spot the problem with that <laughs> The Dursleys are Harry's family. They really are. They're a different branch of the family, certainly. But these people, these people seem to be more than that. So why are these people different? Are they different because they look like him? Are they different because they are his father's line rather than his mother's line? Is it because they are magical? Or is there something else at play here? Is there something that connects Harry to these people that is absent from his connection with the Dursleys? Yeah. Yeah, a, a lot of people are saying on Twitter and in the YouTube chat too that, uh, yeah, th this is a very touching sequence. It absolutely is. It absolutely is. The, the, the mirror is so interesting because we, we burn our way through it very quickly and it has a great kind of it has a great weight it exerts a great weight in the emotional you know uh, landscape of the story yeah yeah good 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 ah Yes, yes, yes. Oh, okay. So we're, we're getting two different takes here. Uh, on, on Twitter, Usagi says they are smiling at him. Yes. And in the YouTube chat, E. Polker says they love him. Yes. Family's not about blood, right? Haven't we just covered that with the Weasleys? Family is not about blood. Family is about, it's about love. It's about, it's about the wanting of someone. It is about the caring for someone. It is about the acceptance of someone. Here, and I genuinely think this is the most profound difference between this experience and every other experience Harry has ever had, here he is wanted and he is accepted. And that is an inordinately powerful thing. Yeah. A very, very difficult experience. And we can understand, I think, where Harry goes from here, you know? The following morning, we have the beat with Harry and Ron at breakfast. Uh, Harry is enthusiastic about the mirror, but there are two points at which we worry. We worry because Harry won't eat. <laughs> Not eating in the pages of Harry Potter is generally a bad thing. But more worryingly, he's losing interest in Flamel and in Snape and in the secret. It just doesn't seem important to him. At the risk of another Tolkien-inspired diversion, <laughs> this reminds me of nothing more than it reminds me of the influence that the ring has on the ring bearer. When Bilbo and Frodo talk about the ring and are tempted by the ring, when others who don't even possess the ring are tempted by it, think of, think of Boromir's last great speech to Frodo. No one sees the ring as being a terrible thing. No one sees the ring as being a dangerous force because the ring itself insinuates its way into your brain. It adjusts the way that you see the world so that the ring is always justifiable. 
The ring is always the answer. Yeah. Which may be one of the reasons that I'm I'm troubled by the mirror of Erised, perhaps more than the pages of this novel actually, you know, justify. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, God. Chris points out that it is 10 p.m. and I'm still in the first chapter. Yeah, we are going to move through the other chapters more swiftly. I do promise that. Um, but we have two more slides to get through to deal with the mirror. The mirror, I think it's fair to say, is probably the it is probably the most significant event that we're going to face today. Yes, Lance says in the next scene, I was waiting for Harry to hiss, my precious. Yes, exactly. Right? And I love, well, we'll get to Dumbledore in just one minute. This is the second beat, though. This is when Harry returns with Ron. Ron, though, was staring transfixed at his image. Look at me, he said. Can you see all your family standing around you? No, I'm alone. But I'm different. I look older, and I'm head boy. What? I am. I'm wearing the badge like Bill used to. And I'm holding the house... <laughs> Excuse me. Ron's voice got away from me there. And I'm holding the house cup and the Quidditch cup. I'm Quidditch captain too. Ron tore his eyes away from the splendid sight to look excitedly at Harry. Do you think this mirror shows the future? Well, how can it? All my family are dead. Let me have another look. You had it to yourself all last night. Give me a bit more time. You're only holding the Quidditch cup. What's interesting about that? I want to see my parents. Don't push me. A sudden noise outside in the corridor put an end to their discussion. They hadn't realized how loudly they had been talking. Quick! Ron threw the cloak back over them as the luminous eyes of Mrs. Norris came around the door. Ron and Harry stood quite still, both thinking the same thing. Did the cloak work on cats? After what seemed an age, she turned and left. This isn't safe. She might have gone for Filch. I bet she heard us. Come on. And Ron pulled Harry out of the room. And if that doesn't bring to mind for the Tolkien fans among you, um... Smeagol first finding the ring and claiming it as his birthday present? Well, it certainly reminds me of that. <laughs> Let me put it that way. All right. The next day, Harry is even more withdrawn and distant, and Ron begs him not to go back to the mirror again, but he does so. And we arrive at the third of our three beats. That third night, he found his way more quickly than before. He was walking so fast he knew he was making more noise than was wise, but he didn't meet anyone. And there were his mother and father smiling at him again, and one of his grandfathers nodding happily. Harry sank down to sit on the floor in front of the mirror. There was nothing to stop him from staying here all night with his family. Nothing at all. Except... So, back again, Harry... Harry felt as though his insides had turned to ice. He looked behind him. Sitting on one of the desks by the wall was none other than Albus Dumbledore. Harry must have walked straight past him, so desperate to get to the mirror he hadn't noticed him. I... I didn't see you, sir. Strange how nearsighted being invisible can make you, said Dumbledore. And Harry was relieved to see that he was smiling. So, said Dumbledore, slipping off the desk to sit on the floor with Harry... You, like hundreds before you, have discovered the delights of the Mirror of Erised. Dumbledore explains what the Mirror does. Uh, and it's an interesting counterpoint, I think, to some of the discussion we've had about choice and, and free will. Back when we were dealing with the Sorting Hat. When we were dealing with the Sorting Hat, we had the idea that what a person was was perhaps 
somewhat less important, marginally less important, or I guess arguably completely less important than what a person wanted. That your innate qualities are less important than the choices that you make every day. But that is not true of the mirror of Erised. The mirror shows you what you want. It shows you your deepest, truest desires, and you can't control it. At a basic level, it seems as though your desires are apart from you, that they are <laughs> that they are distinct from you, that they are, at the very least, not under your conscious control. What does that do to our understanding of goodness? Does the mirror have anything to say about virtue? About who Harry is, or who Ron is, or who Dumbledore is, when we discover that he just really wants some socks, you guys. He just really likes socks. Does the mirror say anything about who a person is in a meaningful way? Or is it simply a trap? Is it simply a, a, a finger puzzle? You start playing with it, and you're stuck. And the more you struggle, the deeper you get. What is the purpose, <laughs> broader level, what is the purpose of the mirror of Erised? Who made this damn thing, and why? What purpose is served by seeing your true desire? Does Harry learn something from this experience? Does Ron learn something from this experience? Does Dumbledore? Is he telling the truth about socks? Yeah. Alan says on Twitter, Ron is your mythic hero right there. His vision concerns his glory. Hmm. That's an interesting one, right? Um... Yes, yes. I mean, it's in part, I think, also familial. It's in part also the um, the desire to excel, the desire to exceed. You know, he has he has Fred and George above him and Percy above him and, and Charlie, you know, of dealing with dragons in Romania. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Yeah, McGigglecute on Twitter says, Ron wants to be an individual while Harry wants to be part of a group. I think the slight tweak that I would put to that is that Ron wants to stand out. Um, because, of course, it's not entirely about individual achievement. He wants to be captain of the Quidditch team. You know, he wants to be, he wants to be head boy. He wants to excel and be set apart from his peers, but still... Those titles are only meaningful if you are integrated in a community, right? <laughs> he doesn't want to go off and live in a cave by himself, being head boy when you live in a cave by yourself, or a tiny little hut on a rock in the sea. Um, isn't the same thing. It doesn't carry with it the same, the same experience there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Liz has a, has a poignant thought. Who made the mirror? Surely someone who suffered a loss. Wow. Yeah, it could be. It could certainly be. Yeah. And of course, there's there's the broader point, I think, that, that an excess of self-regard, an excess of introversion, an excess of attention paid to what you lack, what you want, what you need, what you miss, what defines you in that, that yawning you know, chasm of your soul... An excess of interest in that is always destructive. That it is that it is inherently and fundamentally narcissistic. Yeah. Oh, and Kay asks a question I have pondered today. What would Hermione see? Yeah. Yeah. I would 
suspect... I would honestly suspect something not too different from Ron. I don't think she cares about Quidditch. But I think she would see herself as head girl. I think that is what drives Hermione now. Unless, of course, there is something darker within her soul. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's keep moving here. Uh, so we conclude very quickly. This is this is the subversion. So this is the point at which, in some sense, thanks to Dumbledore's intervention, the spell, the hold of the mirror over Harry is broken, though that is not an easy process, as we'll see from the beginning of the next chapter. Let us move on to chapter 13, and we are certainly going to pick up the pace here. Let me tell you. Um... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, great conversation here. Mm. yes Lance says I dislike the reappearance of the mirror later I think it is misused and a poor choice by the implementer um yeah the problem with the mirror later is that it it it, it needn't be the mirror it, it could be literally anything um when we go to this trouble of establishing a a particular and singular thematic importance for the mirror and then when the mirror appears during the climax it doesn't connect with that. It doesn't connect with Harry's need for family, his desire for family in any way at all. Not, not even a meaningful way. You know, we're not even saying, ah, they kind of whiff on it and it doesn't really work. It's, it, it's just a different thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but Giggle QT on Twitter says, Hermione would see friends who consider getting her Christmas gifts. You may be onto something there. <laughs> All right, all right. Um. <laughs> okay, so we conclude with Dumbledore explaining his fondness for socks. We move on to chapter 13, wherein Harry uh, has renewed nightmares of his parents' death. He's uh, dealing with the flashes of green light. He's dealing with the high-pitched voice. He's dealing with this, this horrifying, you know, half-remembered glimpse at this thing. Um, Hermione returns to school with no discussion whatever, of her Christmas break, but what Hermione does do very purposefully and precisely and immediately is reorient the plot back toward Nicholas Flamel. We are done with the mirror of Erised for now. Our main interest through this chapter, though, is not the pursuit of Nicholas Flamel, but it is, in fact, Quidditch. The next match between Gryffindor and Hufflepuff will put Gryffindor ahead in the House Cup, uh, but Snape is going to referee it, as we learn... And the children, for some reason, suspect a certain bias in favor of Hufflepuff, because if Gryffindor win this match, they overtake Slytherin in the House Cup for the first time in seven years, and we get this slide. The rest of the team hung back to talk to one another as usual at the end of practice, but Harry headed straight back to the Gryffindor common room, where he found Ron and Hermione playing chess. Chess was the only thing Hermione ever lost at, something Harry and Ron thought was very good for her. Don't talk to me for a moment, said Ron when Harry sat down next to him. I need to concentrate. He caught sight of Harry's face. What's the matter with you? You look terrible. Speaking quietly so that no one else would hear, Harry told the other two about Snape's sudden, sinister desire to be a Quidditch referee. Don't play, said Hermione at once. Say you're ill. Pretend to break your leg, Hermione suggested. Really break your leg, said Ron. I can't, said Harry. There isn't a reserve seeker. If I back out... Gryffindor can't play at all. So, a little more chess, right up front. 
But far more importantly, more exceptionalism in Quidditch, we have gone from Harry's formalized role as the only Quidditch player who matters to an actual position where he is the only Quidditch player who matters. If he doesn't play, then there's no game. Quidditch makes no sense. I love it for that. I absolutely love it for that. Um, <laughs> Neville appears in the dorm room, in the common room, I guess, uh, after having been cursed by Draco Malfoy. Malfoy really has lowered his sights. He stopped going after Harry at this point, and now he's focusing on Ron, in part, but mostly on Neville, it would seem. Um, Hermione casts the counter-curse and helps him. Harry gives him the last chocolate frog from the box Hermione gave him, and a few words of encouragement besides. Grateful, Neville gives him back the card, including, at long last, the vital clue as to the identity of Nicholas Flamel. Which I have on a slide, which is updating now. Oh, Jennifer asks, how is wanting to be Quidditch? How is wanting to be a Quidditch referee a sinister desire? Yeah, because it's Snape doing it. <laughs> Snape is the man who could have a sinister desire for a cup of coffee in the morning. <laughs> yeah. She pushed the book toward them, and Harry and Ron read, the ancient study of alchemy is concerned with making the sorcerer's stone, a legendary substance with astonishing powers. The stone will transform any metal into pure gold. It also produces the elixir of life, which will make the drinker immortal. There have been many reports of the sorcerer's stone over the centuries, but the only stone currently in existence belongs to Mr. Nicholas Flamel, the noted alchemist and opera lover. Mr. Flamel, who celebrated his 665th birthday last year, enjoys a quiet life in Devon with his wife, Perinelle, 658. See? said Hermione, when Harry and Ron had finished. The dog must be guarding Flamel's sorcerer's stone. I bet he asked Dumbledore to keep it safe for him because they're friends and he knew someone was after it, and that's why he wanted the stone moved out of Gringotts. A stone that makes gold and stops you from ever dying, said Harry. No wonder Snape's after it. Anyone would want it. And no wonder we couldn't find Flamel in the study of recent developments in wizardry, said Ron. He's not exactly recent if he's 665, is he? So, again... We're focusing very clearly on Snape, and we're moving so quickly that it is hard to poke holes in the logic, but it is odd that no one stops to wonder why, if Dumbledore and Hagrid are trying to protect the Sorcerer's Stone from Snape, why would they move it to Hogwarts? <laughs> this is the part of the story, though, where the pieces are falling into place for us, if not yet for our intrepid heroes. What we see here most interestingly, though, and this, I think, speaks to Alan's note earlier, about eucatastrophe. This, I think, is not eucatastrophic. Because this moment, the, the moment specifically of, of Neville giving Harry the, uh, the Dumbledore card from the Chocolate Frog, this is not eucatastrophic because it doesn't emerge ex nihilo. It doesn't, it doesn't appear from nowhere. It is actually a product of a very important thing. One very important thing. One hugely important impulse. Friendship. And it's not just a single act of friendship, it's nested friendship. Harry gives the last of his chocolate frogs, his favorite candy, to Neville out of kindness and out of friendship. He takes the time to buck up Neville's spirits out of kindness, out of friendship. But Harry himself only has those chocolate frogs to give to Neville because Hermione gave them to Harry. Friendship. You could argue Hermione only gives the chocolate frogs to Harry because Harry goes to save her from the troll. I guess then we get back into something a little more complicated than just friendship, but it's there too. This isn't eucatastrophic in the sense that it is spawned by 
the good action and the good impulse of our protagonist. Harry's a good guy. That is why this happens. You know, the chain of cause and effect may not be entirely tight. It may not be entirely rational. It may not be the kind of chain that we would expect to see in the real world, but it's there nonetheless. And I really like it. I really like this beat. As much as it's frustrating that we go through all this time with the children banging their heads against Nicholas Flamel, I do like that when the moment of discovery comes, it comes in this way. It comes from a very quiet and kind gesture to a boy who is, my God, deserving of quiet and kind gestures. Ah, as Sarah says on Twitter, friendship is magic. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lance asks, what are the odds that the card is Dumbledore? Well, that's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is the force that drives this, you know? But even if even if the appearance of Dumbledore even if the appearance of the Dumbledore card is complete luck, it is still triggered by this simple exchange. It's still it's still spawned from this this this, you know, simple quotidian interaction. This 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 elemental interaction between this group of 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 people. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. Let's keep going because, oh, it's already a quarter after ten. Harry is resolved to play his part in the Quidditch match. Regardless of the ongoing presence of Snape in his life, we begin preparations for the Quidditch match with Ron and Hermione in the stands and with Neville there too, of course. Um, Harry is in the locker room, meanwhile, receiving a pep talk from Wood. He has to end the game quickly before Snape can hand the victory to Hufflepuff. Though, I think even here we get a sense that we're still operating in boarding school adventure territory, right? Snape cannot simply... He cannot simply award the match to Hufflepuff. He, adult that he is, you know, alleged antagonist and villain that he is, cannot break the rules. He has to operate within that structure. He can take every opportunity given him by the Gryffindor kids to favor Hufflepuff, but he can't outright break the rules. We're still operating under this understanding that the rules are extrinsic, that the rules exist out with the kind of... Um, <laughs> out with the rational control of even the adults, that they are measurable. We're... we're, we're you know, capable of predicting exactly where their hard-edged boundaries can be found and navigating around them to safer seas. Yeah. Oh, and Lance, this is very good. Yes, Lance echoes the, the idea of friendship. Harry bought the frogs for Ron in the first place on the train. Very nice. Yes, of course. That's another echo, another layer of that simple that simple act of friendship and kindness, right? Harry originally bought the frogs because Harry has a line uh, a couple of pages earlier when he says that, that he, he remembers seeing the name Nicholas Flanell somewhere. And we, the readers, of course, remember because it's quite distinctive, particularly if this isn't your first time through the book. But Harry doesn't remember. The only reason that name stuck in, uh, has stuck in his head at all is because of his interaction with Ron back there on the train to Hogwarts. Excellent. Really good catch, Lance. Good work. All right. Um, so the game gets underway as Malfoy provokes Ron in the stands. And this is very simple. This is all just very fast and and 
I mean, to say this without judgment, to say this, you know, simply as, as a measure of its impact on the plot, this stuff is trivial. You know, after the first Quidditch game was so important, this is, this is really simple. Ron fights with Malfoy in the stands as Harry spots the snitch and dives towards it. We have the briefest of interactions with Snape in the air, uh, but Harry catches the snitch. The match is over in five minutes. This apparently is a record-breaking Quidditch game, and we don't even see the resolution of the fight between Ron and the Slytherin boys because we just move right on from it. We see the consequence of it, absolutely, but we don't see the moment itself. Um... Dumbledore congratulates Harry, and Snape is, of course, visibly irritated. And we cut ahead just a little until Harry leaves the locker room and sees Snape. Again, great convenience. Uh, He sees Snape disappearing into the Forbidden Forest. He gives chase. He eavesdrops on the casual conversation between Quirrell and Snape. And when we return to the Gryffindor common room thereafter, he gives a brief recap to Hermione and Ron. Harry, where have you been? Hermione squeaked. We won! You won! We won! shouted Ron, thumping Harry on the back. And I gave Malfoy a black eye, and Neville tried to take on Crabbe and Goyle single-handed. He's still out cold, but Madame Pomfrey says he'll be all right. Talk about showing Slytherin. I've... I'm waiting for you. I don't know if that's a typo in my version, or if I did that when I was copying the thing across. Uh, I'm waiting for you in the common room. We're having a party. Fred and George stole some cakes and stuff from the kitchens. Never mind that now, said Harry breathlessly. Let's find an empty room. You wait till you hear this. He made sure Peeves wasn't inside before shutting the door behind them. Then he told them what he'd seen and heard. So we were right. It is the Sorcerer's Stone, and Snape's trying to force Quirrell to help him get it. He asked if he knew how to get past Fluffy, and he said something about Quirrell's hocus-pocus. I reckon there are other things guarding the stone apart from Fluffy. Loads of enchantments, probably, and Quirrell would have done some dark, some anti-dark art spell that Snape needs to break through. So you mean the snow <clears throat> excuse me. So you mean the stone's only safe as long as Quirrell stands up to Snape, said Hermione in alarm. It'll be gone by next Tuesday, said Ron. <clears throat> excuse me. Ooh. Time for a little scotch to soothe the pipes there. The thing I like least about this <laughs> it's such a silly beat. The thing I like least about this is Hermione squeaking. I, I do not like Hermione squeaking. That doesn't seem like a particularly Gringerian thing to do. So we're getting more information at this point, and it's all making sense from this boarding school adventure view of the world that I described earlier. If 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 something is secreted away, then it is absolutely a fair goal for the protagonist. Simply by virtue of being secret, it should be uncovered by our intrepid heroes. That is a that is a given. That is a fundamental principle of that type of story. If traps and challenges are set to protect that hidden secret something, then overcoming those traps and challenges is a completely fair way of getting the thing, because the rules are clean and they are only enforceable in specific ways. If you circumvent them, or if you solve the problem in front of you, then you are playing fair and cannot be punished. A little timekeeping before we move on to chapter 14. Chapter 13 just burns right by, doesn't it? Just burns right by. Very little of consequence. Uh, So the little timekeeping before we move on to chapter 14. Uh, I took some notes here as I'm compiling this timeline as we move through. The Quidditch match between Gryffindor and Hufflepuff took place in early February. And remember that we started tonight's reading in mid-December. Okay, so we've already jumped ahead two months. 
The Quidditch match takes place in early February. We're skipping ahead to Hermione's exam prep, which, counting backwards from the beginning of June, gets us to early March. That is 10 weeks before the beginning of exams. So Quirrell is holding up pretty well, all things considered. Looking ahead, though, to the events in the last chapter tonight, it is the middle of April by the time Norbert hatches, and it is early May, two weeks later, by the time Ron is bitten and Charlie's friends take possession of the dragon, and we conclude tonight's reading. So we go all the way from uh, mid-December to early May in the span of tonight's read. And it's kind of, it's it, it feels a little loose. It feels... Let me put it this way. I think that the plot and the pacing of this story suffers just a little bit because J.K. Rowling wanted to have the invisibility cloak be a Christmas present. And that is the thing that triggers the next cycle of the adventure. That is what that is what moves us through the next arc of the adventure. And unfortunately, that's just very early in the school year, so we have to pad a lot of this back end of the school year so that our, I guess, internal and external conflicts, our, our, our specific and general conflicts, can climax at the same time. Um, it's, it's a little loose. The only thing that really bugs me, honestly, is Malfoy keeping his mouth shut. <laughs> I don't understand why Malfoy keeps his mouth shut. It, it bugs me every time I read it, and it throws me out of the book every time I read it, because it's so clearly just a piece of structuring, you know? We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Um, I should say before we get into the specifics of this chapter, and some of you may yell at me for this, I do know that this is a beloved chapter. This is my least favorite part of the book. This chapter specifically, the 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 the, uh, the chapter with the dragon specifically. Um, I don't care about this chapter of the book. I don't like this version of Hagrid. For a start, I don't like stupid Hagrid. This feels incompatible with the Hagrid that we've seen earlier, you know? Hagrid, when we met him, was all about the trust that Dumbledore had placed in him. He was all about, you know, being a a good and reliable and stalwart man. And yes, absolutely, his desire for a dragon was foreshadowed right at the beginning of the book. But here we have him not just breaking the rules, but behaving in a wildly irresponsible fashion while he does so, you know? It, it feels a little unhagrid for him to be doing this. So I don't like Hagrid, and I don't like the way that this new plot arrives and just stalls everything else. I don't like the way that we, we don't progress the main plot for the weeks that it takes this particular story to unfold. I don't like Malfoy's inexplicable silence. I don't like the way that we're marking time just so that our events line up at the end of the school year. I really don't like the contrivance of the final beat. This chapter exists in the book for one reason and one reason alone. Okay, let me rephrase that. This <laughs> Rephrase. Let me revise that. This chapter exists for two reasons. One of which I do really like, but we'll talk about that next week when it's revealed. The other reason, the other purpose that this chapter serves is simply to knock back the progress that Harry and Hermione and Neville have been making. We just want them punished. We just want them in trouble. And we want them specifically in detention so that they end up in the Forbidden Forest next chapter. Or the chapter after next, I guess. That's it. It's that simple. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? 
Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm seeing. Yeah, there's a few other people saying that they're not fans of Hagrid. Chris says, "I think I forgot this chapter entirely until I reread it today." Michelle says, "Does it move the story forward, or does it have significance in the future?" No, a, a very minor. You know what? Let, let's. I can spoil next week's reading. I guess the very minor kind of of reward that you get for enduring this chapter is the the, the nice bit of plotting that it was Quirrell who gave um, Hagrid the dragon egg in exchange for information about Fluffy. So what seems like a forced contrivance, I mean, still is a forced contrivance, but it's a forced contrivance that comes out of a fairly nice detail. Though, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess still with the raising of dragons being illegal, it still it still asks more questions than it answers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So generally we're against, but I, I will note here that, that uh, Barbara says, I think the dragon Norbert demonstrates how Hagrid is so devoted to animals. I think it's really wonderful. I would agree that that is, that is a, a, an enormously virtuous part of Hagrid's character. I do like Hagrid's interaction with animals in general, with, with the natural world, in fact, in general. And we'll see that again, you know, before the book is done. Um, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the... Hagrid is not a man to I was going to say sentimentalize but that's not true Hagrid is is a thousand percent sentimental Hagrid is not a man to infantilize the natural world he has a real respect for it I think um so his treatment of Norbert and his response to it yeah 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 all right all right let's get into it <laughs> <laughs> we set the scene. We acknowledge that Harry and Ron are being a little kinder to Quirrell these days. And then we get into the studying. Hermione is organized, but the boys are not. When they are studying in the library and Hagrid shows up, however, work is forgotten. He makes his excuses, but they investigate nonetheless. And we get this scene right here. This is after Hagrid leaves. We are going to have Hagrid voice. We're going to have a big old sign of, uh, a big old slide rather of, uh, of Hagrid voice right after this. I'm going to see what section he was in, said Ron, who'd had enough of working. He came back a minute later with a pile of books in his arms and slammed them down on the table. Dragons, he whispered. Hagrid, Hagrid was looking up stuff about dragons. Look at these. Dragon species of Great Britain and Ireland from Egg to Inferno, a dragon keeper's guide. Hagrid's always wanted a dragon. He told me the first time I ever met him, said Harry. But it's against our laws, said Ron. Dragon breeding was outlawed by the Warlocks Convention of 1709. Everyone knows that. It's hard to stop muggles from noticing us if we're keeping dragons in the back garden. Anyway, you can't tame dragons. It's dangerous. You should see the burns Charlie's got off the wild ones in Romania. But there aren't wild dragons in Britain, said Harry. Of course there are, said Ron. Commonwealth Green and Hebridean Blacks. The Ministry of Magic has a job hushing them up, I can tell you. Our... <clears throat> our kind have to keep putting spells on muggles who spotted them to make them forget. So what on earth's Hagrid up to? said Hermione. So, this is a really interesting shift for me. And as someone who is um, profoundly interested in this division between the mundane world and, and the magical world, um, this is one of the first indications we have that the Ministry of Magic actively guards the secrets of the wizarding world on an ongoing basis. Rather than being protected by static charms, there are, at this point in the fiction, 
presumably, I guess, men in black style magical agents, erasing memories, undoing damage. It's an interesting glimpse. It makes us feel less as though Hogwarts and the Wizarding Realm is a separate space, that that it connects with the Muggle world only through those unique portals that we described earlier, you know, the, the alleyway behind the Leaky Cauldron or the Hogwarts Express at Platform 9 and 3 quarters. And it implies more that these two worlds are contiguous, that they touch in innumerable places and spaces, and that if the magical world isn't careful about preserving its own isolation, its own secrecy, then it's going to be exposed. This is the first hint we get that the wizard world may be vulnerable. I find that fascinating. I find it absolutely fascinating, particularly that it that it appears here, that it's not in any way kind of represented in the rest of the book. You know, this is just, this is a glimpse of the kind of world building that J.K. Rowling is going to do in future books, but it is not representative of the world building that we get in this book. And I'm interested in the idea that, thematically, that, that Harry has matured a little in the last year. Particularly, you know, after dealing with the Mirror of Erised, and particularly after dealing with this newfound popularity as the, the, uh, the star Quidditch seeker, he may be beginning to leave behind childish things. Or it may be part that and part Rowling's evolving sense of how the worlds interrelate. And note, too, that we get this moment of surprising sophistication and acuity from Ron. It's against our laws. Dragon breeding was outlawed by the Warlocks Convention of 1709. Everyone knows that. Now, that doesn't sound like Ron. Except it kind of does, and we've been here for a year, and it's okay that Ron is actually learning a thing or two. Ron's not, you know, stupid. It would have been easy, I think, to give this explanation to Hermione. I rather like that it's given to Ron. Let me put it that way. <laughs> Ron, of course, also... Oh, as, as, uh, as Sarah is saying right here on Twitter right now, Ron has Charlie. Uh, Ron has a, a personal connection to dragons and dragonology. Um, yeah, yeah. Good, good, good. All right. Um, so we, we have this moment, and this will, of course, continue to develop. We'll, we'll continue to look at the ways in which these two worlds interrelate if we move past, uh, this first book and into the others. Let's pick up immediately uh, with the next slide, um, which may be, oh, the penultimate slide of the evening here at 1030. All right, we can make it through. Let's do this. So right after that conversation in the library, they head off to Hagrid's hut and we have this. When they knocked on the door of the gamekeeper's hut an hour later, they were surprised to see all the curtains were closed. Hagrid called, who is it? before he let them in, and then shut the door quickly behind them. It was stifling hot inside. Even though it was such a warm day, there was a blazing fire in the grate. Hagrid made them tea and offered them stoked sandwiches, which they refused. So, you wanted to ask me something? Yes, said Harry. There was no point beating around the bush. We were wondering if you could tell us what's guarding the Sorcerer's Stone, apart from Fluffy. Hagrid frowned at him. Course I can't, he said. Number one, I don't know myself. Number two, you know too much already, so I wouldn't tell you if I could. That stone's here for a good reason. 
It was almost, <laughs> it was almost stolen out of Gringotts. I suppose you worked that out by now and all. Beats me, I even know about Fluffy. Oh, come on, Hagrid. You might not want to tell us, but you do know. You know everything that goes on around here, said Hermione in a warm, flattering voice. Hagrid's beard twitched, and they could tell he was smiling. We only wondered who had done the guarding, really, Hermione went on. We wondered who Dumbledore had trusted enough to help him, apart from you. Hagrid's chest swelled at these last words. Harry and Ron beamed at Hermione. Well, I don't suppose it could hurt to tell you that. Let's see. He borrowed Fluffy from me, and then some of the teachers did enchantments. Professor Spratt, Professor Flitwick, Professor McGonagall. He ticked them off on his fingers. Professor Quirrell and Dumbledore himself did something, of course. Hang on, I've forgotten someone. Oh, yeah, Professor Snape. Snape? Yeah. You're not still on about that, are you? Look, Snape helped protect the stone. He's not about to steal it. Harry knew Ron and Hermione were thinking the same as he was. If Snape had been in on protecting the stone, it must have been easy to find out how to get the other teach. Excuse me. It must have been easy to find out how the other teachers had guarded it. He probably knew everything, except, it seemed, Quirrell's spell and how to get past Fluffy. Notice Harry's change of heart right here at the beginning of this passage. See anything conspicuous about it? <laughs> yes, said Harry. There was no point beating around the bush. We were wondering if you could tell us what's guarding the Sorcerer's Stone apart from Fluffy. That is not why they came to the hut. That is not the beat that led them here. They're interested in why Hagrid was looking up dragon books. This is part of the problem with this chapter. We refocus and we reframe and we move quickly so that we can get the pieces where they need to be, so that we can make the things happen that need to happen. We're given here our first real sense of the trials that await our hero in next week's reading, and we're framing the forthcoming conflict, which is not bad, you know? We're doing some things here. <laughs> that are structural, that are purposeful, that will help the climax. There's just a trade-off here, in the here and now. Which is not to say, of course, that I don't love Hermione, uh, <laughs> wielding her intellect and outrageous flattery here. There's not, though, a great deal to carefully analyze in the rest of this chapter, honestly. Um, they ask about the egg. We we conclude the scene with Hermione's concern that, that Hagrid lives in a fire hazard, which is a good moment for Hermione, not a great moment for Hagrid. We skip ahead to the dragon hatching, which is, I concede, a well-written scene. It's nicely done. But then we have Malfoy peering through the window. We have two more weeks go by after that. Two weeks in which nothing happens and Malfoy takes no action. <laughs> two weeks go by before Ron is bitten and they receive the message from Charlie that he'll take Norbert the following Saturday night. Ron is taken to the hospital wing because of the bite. He unwisely, and this may be, I think, the most problematic moment of the whole thing, Malfoy comes to the hospital wing to taunt Ron, who gives him the book containing the letter from Charlie, upon which was written their entire secret plan. I mean, good job. Good job, I guess. We're really scrabbling. To, to line up <laughs> all of the many varied plot elements that we need. Yeah. Eventually, though, we arrive at our final slide of the evening, and this is it. 
They would have felt sorry for Hagrid when the time came for him to say goodbye to Norbert if they hadn't been so worried about what they had to do. It was a very dark, cloudy night, and they were a bit late arriving at Hagrid's hut because they had to wait for Peeves to get out of their way in the entrance hall, where he'd been playing tennis against the wall. Hagrid had Norbert packed and ready in a large crate. "'He's got lots of rats and some brandy for the journey,' said Hagrid in a muffled voice, "'and I've packed his teddy bear in case he gets lonely.' From inside the crate came ripping noises that sounded to Harry as though the teddy was having his head torn off. "'Bye-bye, Norbert!' Hagrid sobbed as Harry and Hermione covered the crate with the invisibility cloak and stepped underneath it themselves. "'Mummy will never forget you!' How they managed to get the crate back up to the castle, they never knew. Midnight ticked nearer as they heaved Norbert up the marble staircase in the entrance hall and along the dark corridors. Up another staircase, then another. Even one of Harry's shortcuts didn't make the work much easier. Nearly there, Harry panted as they reached the corridor beneath the tallest tower. Then a sudden movement ahead of them made them almost drop made them almost drop the crate. Forgetting they were already invisible, they shrank into the shadows, staring at the dark outlines of two people grappling with each other ten feet away. A lamp flared. Professor McGonagall, in a tartan bathrobe and a hairnet, had Malfoy by the ear. Detention! she shouted, and twenty points from Slytherin! Wandering around in the middle of the night, how dare you! You don't understand, Professor! Harry Potter's coming, he's got a dragon! What utter rubbish! How dare you tell such lies! Come on, I shall see Professor Snape about you, Malfoy! Generally a good idea. In your fiction. Little note for the writers amongst you. <laughs> Generally a good idea in your fiction to not have your characters observe the, pl- the, the holes in your plot. Um, how they managed, they never knew. Yes. Usually better to whistle past those moments of implausibility rather than highlight them, but there it is. Look at the way that the conflict is framed. From an adult perspective, McGonagall is acting unjustly. If this were an adult story... We would look at McGonagall and say, you are terrible at your job. (laughs) This is at least unjust. She is taking points from a boy who, flaws aside, is actually telling the truth. But from the boarding school adventure perspective, though, Malfoy broke the rules. He fell foul of the letter of the law. This is one of the rare instances. This may be... Hmm... I'm just now reviewing. This may be the best instance in the entire book, actually, where the ruthless application of these hard and fast rules actually benefits our heroes. It also, of course, opens up a certain ironic potential in next week's reading, right at the beginning of next week's reading. But uh, for now, Draco broke the rules and he was punished, and that's how it works. Yes, we're getting some getting some comments here, too. Um... Lance says, so now Harry knows the shortcuts. Harry doesn't just know the shortcuts. They're Harry's shortcuts. Harry has exercised a mastery over them and has somehow taken some kind of, I don't know, nominative uh, possession of them. Yeah. It's interesting. It's, It's an interesting beat. I don't even hate the idea of Harry and Hermione smuggling the dragon in. <laughs> I kind of like that as an idea. It's just improperly, for me at least, improperly motivated. So, shortly after this slide, Hermione gloats about Malfoy's detention, uh, in which she does a little dance and says that she could almost sing. I said earlier that 
the explanation of the warlock code that illegalized uh, owning a dragon, that, that Ron's explanation of that sounded like it could be a Hermione line. This is a Hermione line that sounds like it should be a Ron line. <laughs> the little dance, the little singing, yeah. Then, swiftly and simply, almost as though we were glad to be done with it as a plot device, Norbert is taken away by Charlie's friends and Hermione and Harry descend the tower only to run into Filch and to conclude our chapter. And here's the good thing. As scrappy as this is, as 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 rapidly as the scaffolding is erected to get us where we need to be, it does work. It does get us where we need to be. Everything is now lined up. We have every single major component. I guess maybe bar one. Maybe there's one major component that will be introduced to when we hit the Forbidden Forest, but everything else is all there. Everything else is ready. It is locked off, and we are good to go. Next week's reading is going to be a fascinating one. Next week's reading has a lot uh, of rewarding material in it. We barrel toward the end of the story. We face challenges within and without. We are talking about... Let me call up the slide here, just so I can show you. Next week... Thresholds, chapters 15 and 16. That will be next Tuesday night, usual time, usual place. The following week, also on Tuesday night, usual time, usual place, we wrap up the book with chapter 17 and some closing thoughts. There'll be a little uh, a little wrap-up, a little discussion of the book as a whole. There will also be uh, probably some Q&A on that Tuesday night. I would imagine that session will run a little long. The following Sunday, after that last session, this is May the 24th, at 2 p.m. Eastern, we're going to hold a special final afternoon session wherein I will discuss the movie. I will discuss all of my many problems with the uh, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone film. We'll do that. We'll have a little Q&A session. We'll talk a little more generally about the book. And uh, we'll probably take a break after that for a little while. There will be a few weeks after that uh, before we come back with our next seminar, which will almost certainly, judging by the voting right now, be Pride and Prejudice. Pride and Prejudice currently has around 55% of the vote. Um, A lot of votes have been cast, uh, almost 400. So it's looking pretty good so far. Um, It's going to be Pride and Prejudice. More importantly... If you head on over to our Patreon page, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash storywonk, you will see that we are closing in, in fact, on our next Patreon goal, which is, coincidence of all coincidences, a commentary series for the BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries. It is entirely possible that those two things could happen at the same time. It looks as though it's going to be the summer of Pride and Prejudice here on Storywonk, and I actually can't wait. I'm really looking forward to talking about those books, uh, talking about that book, and that series. Um, and also talking about a book that exists in a vacuum. It's going to be great to actually talk about one novel that isn't part of a bigger series. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yes, yes, yes. The seminar voting. You know what? Let me click over right now and I can tell you what the seminar voting is live. Live right here on the seminar. The voting is currently... I'm very happy with this new technology that we've got underpinning this. This is working out rather nicely. Okay, in third place with 61 votes, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Lengel. In second place with 76 votes. Wow, Mort picked up today. It got a lot of... It must have had... I think it was behind A Wrinkle in Time. So Mort has picked up something like, you know, 18, 20 votes, something like that in the last 24, 48 hours. Um, So Mort is in second place with 76 votes. Pride and Prejudice currently has 198 votes. 
It's pretty much a lock at this point. Uh, Mort and A Wrinkle in Time will fight it out for second place. The second place book will win an automatic spot on the next shortlist. All of these books. We'll do all of these books sooner or later. That's just the way it's going to be. Um, I think Pride and Prejudice, I'm seeing some questions here about scheduling, and I think Pride and Prejudice is going to probably be probably an eight-week uh, an eight-week seminar run, I think. We'll see how that works out. And Carrie says, and Generation X is still getting the shaft. Have I not, like, properly expressed to you guys how good Generation X is? If you haven't read Generation X, Tales for an Accelerated Culture by Douglas Copeland, go read it. It's really good. It's really good. <laughs> I can completely understand why it's getting its ass kicked in this poll, but still, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, guys. So two more weeks of the Harry Potter seminar. And then we'll be done with this thing. And then we'll, we'll talk about the movie and that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me, everyone. Uh, I will see you all next week. In the meantime, please head on over to storywonk.com. I will put up a, uh, I will put up a thread on the forum right now, the minute we wrap up here so that we can get into the discussion. And thank you to everyone for stopping by. Thank you all for your brilliant insights. Thank you all for, for taking the time to uh, read this marvelous book and to have this conversation. This is, this is just the highlight of my week. I love doing this with you all. Thank you so much. I will see you all next week. Goodbye.